series through the Gospel of John. We didn't finish the series, but we finished John chapter 12, which is a breaking point in the Gospel. So we are going to take a short little break um, for now, do a little short two-week sort of series thing. It's not necessarily that if you aren't here this week that you're going to not understand next week, or you're not going to understand this week if you're not here next week, but they, next week will build upon this week, I'll just say that. But um, then we'll jump into the holidays, and then sometime after the first of the year we'll get back into John. But we are doing just a two-week thing here, so let's go ahead and, and pray as we get started this morning. Father, we ask that you would revive our hearts again, that you would have your spirit fill us, stir our hearts, change our hearts this morning as we come to your word. And may we, as we come to your word, may we find your grace. And we realize that there's not a single moment of our lives that we can live apart from your grace. That we could never have hope of salvation and we could certainly have no hope of ever living a life pleasing to you without your grace working in us. So help us to remember your grace this morning. Help us to see it in your word and help our hearts to find rest in your grace, but may our hearts by your grace be stirred to live for you, to seek to honor you with what we hear from your word this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the movie The Age of Adeline, a young woman gets into a car accident that changes her entire life. From the moment of that accident, 29-year-old Adeline continues to look like herself for the next 80 years. Her face never ages, her body never grows weary of old age, everything about her freezes in time, but the world continues to spin on. Well, you can imagine this causes quite the problem for her. She never stays in the same place for more than a few years because people start to notice and ask questions. She never maintains close friendships or any type of relationship, so she keeps this reality hidden from the world. But by the end of the movie, it is a love story after all, she meets someone who makes her want to actually age again. Now if you want to know the ending, you'll have to go rent it for yourself. But the story of Adeline is far too common in many modern-day Christian lives. America is filled with churches of people who have claimed to have had this miraculous one-time experience of coming to know Jesus, of the fact that they've been forgiven, they've been reconciled to the God of the universe through Christ's death, but then their spiritual lives never seem to mature for decades. The same sins they struggled with before their salvation continue to have a hold on them throughout their entire lives. They don't grow in understanding much of who God is beyond knowing that basic gospel message that saved them. Their commitment to the things of God seems to just stay at the same level as they go throughout their entire 
life. In fact, some of these people may even follow Adeline's logic and say, well, I need to jump from church to church every few years so that way nobody actually knows me long enough to notice that I'm not growing and maturing in my faith. I just want to stay the same. But we know this ought not to be so, don't we? God is honored in people being saved, certainly, but God is not honored in seeing those same people never experience true change in their lives from that point on. So what I want to use our time this morning is to look at a passage that describes how change takes place, but specifically how change takes place in our lives in God's way. And my hope is that you'll be able to use this in your own life as well as to speak into other believers' lives, whether it be believers here at church, believers in your family, believers at your job. So let's go ahead and look at our passage for today. We're in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming." In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now you may have noticed the answer to the first point there, the question we need to ask of who changes. Now we all know that all people in some sense can experience change in life. But what we're talking about is we're narrowing the focus here and saying, who can experience true God-honoring kind of change? Not just who can change some certain behaviors or something, but who can experience true change that actually honors the Lord? That's the kind of change we're talking about. The change that is experienced by those who are brought from spiritual death into spiritual life. 
Who can change that way? And you see it right from the get-go in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Right from the start, the narrowed focus here. Who changes? Those who have been raised with Christ. You must be in Christ. You must have new life in Christ in order to experience this kind of change. Because what's happened to you if you've been raised with Christ? What happened before that? Verse 3. For you have died. Right? If you share in the new life in Christ, it's because you first shared in His death where you left your old life, your old ways behind. So plain and simple, only believers in Christ can experience God-honoring change. According to this. Because what happens when you die and are raised with Christ, brought into new life. What happens in that moment? You receive the Holy Spirit. Turn over real quick. Keep your finger in Colossians. That's our main text. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So it's only in receiving the Holy Spirit that we can experience your change, and you only receive the Spirit when you believe the Gospel. The Spirit is so important to experience this change because look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So if the only way to turn from your flesh, to turn away from your sin, is to walk with the Spirit, what do you have to have in order to walk with the Spirit? You must first have received the Spirit. Right? And you only receive Him when you believe the Gospel. So only those who are truly in Christ, those who believe the Gospel, can change in this way that we're going to see this morning. Because we only change first and foremost by the Spirit working in us. But while we're on the topic, real quick, of the necessity of being a believer to change, let me also say this. True believers in Jesus Christ actually want to change. A believer wants the Spirit to work in them, to change them, that they would turn more away from their old self and put on the new self. I'm not saying that means it's a comfortable experience, It certainly does cause discomfort, doesn't it, to deal with sin in our own lives. But a true believer wants to change. So if you're listening online or you're sitting here this morning and you're saying to yourself, I'm a believer, but I'm pretty content with where I am. I'm not too concerned about how much I sin. I'm not too concerned with how much I've really changed since I've come into the Christian life. If that's you this morning, I'm just going to be straightforward with you. I'm not sure you're saved. Plain and simple, if there's no desire in you to turn away from your sinful ways, even though you claim the name of Jesus, I'm not sure you're actually saved if you don't have that desire in you at all. I'm not sure I can agree with you on that. That it's possible to call yourself a believer in Jesus, yet you don't want Jesus to produce good fruit in you by being a believer. 
The only people who can truly change are those who believe in Jesus, and because they believe in Jesus, they actually want Jesus to change them. But that brings us then to the main topic here. The discussion first of seeing the problem in our lives that we know needs to be changed. Right? Every single one of us can look around at our lives and see behaviors that are sinful. We can hear ourselves say words that either shouldn't be said or were said in a tone that they shouldn't have been said with. Right? So that gets to your next point. We call this the surface problem. This is the sin in our lives that's clearly seen by us or by the people around us. It's seen by our actions and our words and the way that we interact with everything in the world around us. It actually was probably some of what may have stuck out to you the most as we read this passage, right? We see the bad ones, right? The the old self listed in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Then jump down to verse 8. We see some more. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And this isn't even an exhaustive list, right? Stealing, bitterness, strife, jealousy, greed, arrogance, substance abuse, arguing, laziness. We could include all of those into that category of sinful behaviors. I could make a case from other parts of Scripture to include any number of those on top of other ones. The point is, whatever the surface problem is, we see it quite clearly, don't we? We can look at our lives, or other people around us can watch our lives and see where we're failing. We see where the old self continues to pop up in certain parts of our life. And then we look at Paul's list here of the new self, and we see all the ways in which we're not living up to it. Starting in verse 12. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Verse 14. And above all, love. So we see the opposite of the old self found now in the new self. Not anger, but forgiveness. Not malice, but meekness. Not arrogance, but humility. Not hate, but compassion. And most of all, love. We look at our lives and we see how we're out of step with these things. We see what we're supposed to step out of and step into, yet we also see how we're failing to step into some of these. So on the surface level, we can see that something has gone incredibly wrong. The problem is that many Christians tend to remain in the area of the surface problem. All they see is they see, okay, I see the wrong behavior, and I want to jump to the right behavior. The problem is, when you're only addressing the surface problem, you end up with only a surface solution. Let's take, for example, a a husband who maybe has a tendency to speak harshly to his wife. If the husband learns that's the bad behavior, I need to learn to keep my mouth shut, right? 
If the husband learns to keep his mouth shut, yet while his wife is talking or while he's in a relationship with her, he still has all these thoughts that he wants to say, but he's not saying them. Has the issue really been addressed? It hasn't. So it's not enough to just cover the surface problem. Right? His restraint of his mouth is only actually going to be temporary if he only is trying to do it at a surface level. Or take children, for example. I'll give you an example I'll use throughout the message of Albert this week. The other night, we were upstairs at our house where we don't get very good Wi-Fi connection up there, which is fine. But the kids wanted to watch Barney on my iPad. So we pulled it up, and it just kept spinning and spinning and spinning and was never playing And while waiting, all I heard from Albert was a constant look at me. Barney? 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 Every five seconds. So it's clear in that moment Albert has a problem with patience. But if Albert learns that all he needs to do is stop saying Barney, has his impatience really been resolved? Not by any means. Because I guarantee you the next time Albert asks for a snack and I tell him to hold on a minute, I'm going to hear something about it. Or the next time he wants to watch something and it's slow again, I'm going to hear it yet again. Focusing on the surface problems only produces surface solutions. And what, is, what happens then with our Christian life? It simply becomes a repetition, isn't it? Of just telling yourself, just try harder. Just do better. Which leads you to where? Nothing but utter despair. Because you just keep trying, and you just keep trying, but then you just keep finding yourself over and over again in the old ways. But why it keeps happening is because you're only dealing with the first layer of the problem. If I go out to an apple tree, and I pluck off an apple, and an apple grows in its place, should I be upset about that? I sure hope not. You'd actually probably look at me as if I was a little mentally unstable if I was getting frustrated by such a thing. You'd say, Sam, this is an apple tree with apple roots. It's going to produce apples. And I'm going to say to you that as long as you're only focused on the surface issue, it's like trying to get an orange to grow from an apple tree. You must turn your attention to the true problem, which is the roots what we call here the deeper problem. There is a deeper issue than just the surface problem here. Right? When you consider the husband who might hold his tongue but still has harsh thoughts about his wife, or when you consider Albert whose impatience continues even if he's not actually verbally speaking it. Our words and our behaviors come from a deeper place, from a root source, our minds and our hearts. Everything that we do and everything that we say is just a revelation of what already exists inside of us. Look how Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, 
slander. What comes out of your mouth proceeds from your heart. The actions of murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, even the evil thoughts people have proceed from what's already in the person's heart. Let me explain it this way, maybe. Think of your life as a water bottle. What happens when you squeeze a water bottle? You end up with water on the floor. Now think of the circumstances of your life as squeezing your water bottle, squeezing your life. It could be marriage problems, it could be disobedient children, it could be problematic co-workers, it could be argumentative family members, it could be you or a family member getting sick, it could be your car breaks down, it could be that you find yourself stuck in a traffic jam. Whatever it is, it's squeezing your life, right? It's putting pressure in on you. And when life squeezes, water comes out. It's inevitable. Your situations in life, your pressures in life are going to force you to have some sort of response. You have to respond to the world around you. But when water ends up on the floor, my question is, why is it that it's water on the floor? Why is it not Mountain Dew? Why isn't it grape juice on the floor? Because when life squeezes, all it does is it pours out what already exists inside of you. That's what Jesus is saying here. Life is going to squeeze. You're going to respond. What comes out of you is not the responsibility of your circumstances. Just because the circumstances of life put pressure doesn't mean the circumstances are at fault for what comes out of you. What comes out of you when life squeezes is your responsibility of what's already existing in you. What comes out is going to be based on what's already in your heart and in your mind before the circumstances ever even begin to squeeze. Jump back to Colossians 3. Verse 5. Now we see the surface level of things, right? The behaviors, right? When we read things like sexual immorality or impurity. But what does Paul include in the old self? Evil desire. Nobody sees another person's desires. You see how someone might pursue their desires, but you can't tangibly actually take someone's desire and look at it. That's something that exists within them. And then catch what Paul does here in verses 9 and 10. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices... Now we hear practices and we think behaviors, external things, right? But then verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. You see what Paul's saying here. In order to stop the old self behaviors, the surface problem, it demands that your mind, your knowledge is being renewed. Getting rid of the sinful surface things only happens when we begin to think in a more godly way. We also see it right from the get-go in verses 1 and 2. Seek 
the things that are above. That sounds very active, doesn't it? Very behavioral. What am I seeking after? What am I pursuing after? But then what does verse 2 say? Set your minds on the things that are above. So now there's a relationship. You seek what your mind is set on. And then see what Paul introduces at the end of all of this. Verses 15 and 16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Right? So now we see it's not just the mind, but it's also the heart. So we have a much deeper problem than just sinful behaviors. We have sinful minds and sinful hearts. So let's take a look at these. So first we have wrong thoughts about life. Wrong thoughts about who God is. Wrong thoughts about other people. Wrong thoughts about ourselves. Wrong thoughts on how we're supposed to be looking at our circumstances. The husband who speaks harshly to his wife thinks he is the ultimate authority. He thinks he knows best how things ought to work. Everyone just needs to listen to him. His wife, at that moment, is just a means to an end. She is there to accomplish his bidding. That's what he actually believes. That's what he's thinking in those moments. Or Albert believes. His process of thinking is that he deserves what he wants when he wants it. The people in his life and the devices in his life are there to cater to him. And you can dig into this with all sorts of sin, right? If you're anxious about your finances, that can stem from a belief, a thinking, that God might not actually provide. I get anxious about it because I don't know if I fully believe God's going to provide for me. Or bitterness can be rooted in the belief of I get to be the judge of who has wronged me and I get to be the executioner. I'm the one. I think this about myself when someone wrongs me. So we have sinful minds. But then we come to the heart. It's not just sinful beliefs, but it's sinful desires. We either want the wrong things entirely, or we find things we should want, but those become demands. Just because you want good things doesn't mean they can become ultimate things to you. The husband, speaking harshly to his wife, has a desire for control. He doesn't desire for God to have control. He desires that he has control. He may even have a desire that he wants his wife to feel badly for something that she's done. So his desire is revenge. Albert has a desire for immediate results. His wants should be met with a quick response. And again, it can be applied in all sorts of sins. Sexual immorality can be done out of a desire to be loved, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But when it's elevated to the point of, I'm going to get this, in if, even if it means I have to go outside the boundaries of what God has put in place, now it becomes sinful. Or gossip. Gossip can have its roots in all sorts of different desires, right? It can be a desire of, I don't like this person, I'm frustrated with the person, I'm going to enact revenge on this person by sharing bad information about them. Or 
It can be a desire of, I want all the people in my life to know I have the scoop on what's going on in people's lives. So now I'm going to share all this information I know so they know how much I know. The point is, every sinful behavior, every sinful word is rooted first, primarily in a sinful heart and a sinful mind. It goes beyond the surface level into a much deeper problem, which means it needs a deeper solution, a solution that can address the minds and hearts of people rather than just their behaviors. It brings us to our final point, how to change. As you begin to look at your surface sins that are so clear to many of us, Now you see them through a deeper lens into your heart. The question remains, how do I then have my heart and my mind changed? And I think this passage helps us to see that. There's a few steps we're going to go through. First, mourn your sin. It's really difficult to take the change process seriously if you don't first realize how terrible your sin actually is. And notice what Paul writes here as he describes the old self. Verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Your sin, from your surface actions all the way to what your heart desires, to what your mind thinks, deserves nothing but the wrath of God. That's it. That's all it deserves. And you must mourn that reality. In fact, look how James puts it in James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. That doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? The process of drawing near to God, of having our hands cleansed, of having our hearts purified, means we have to have our joy turned to gloom, that we have to consider ourselves wretched, our laughter turned to mourning. That's exactly what's being said here. And so first we must mourn our sin. I think this includes a couple different actions, but one of which that we've often neglected is confession. Part of the mourning process is to confess our sin, first and foremost to God, but then also to some, whoever it is that we've wronged. But Proverbs tells us it's not just confessing your sin, it says confess and forsake your sin and you will obtain mercy. It's not just confessing it, but it's now I have a hatred for it. The more we mourn our sin, the more we begin to hate our sin. But it's not a mourning that leads to depression. It's not a hopeless mourning. It's a mourning that's supposed to lead you to grace, which is the next step. Rely on God's grace. As you grow in your awareness of your sin and the seriousness of your sin, you have to then make a straight line to the cross. To the fact that God, in His grace, sent Jesus 
to take that wrath that was coming for these actions, desires, thoughts. Notice the note that Paul makes in verse 13. In the midst of calling them to forgive each other, what's he say? As the Lord has forgiven you. The reminder Paul gives them is, you're only going to offer grace when you recognize that you have first received grace. You are desperately in need of God's grace to forgive every sinful desire, every sinful thought you ever have. But it's not just for past forgiveness that you need God's grace. You need to rely on God's grace to have those thoughts and desires changed. It's only by God's grace that he's going to work in us to change our thoughts and desires. Now, the temptation there might be for some people to stop. Mourn your sin, confess it, then rely on God's grace to change you. But that can make us passive and lazy in our Christian life, in the change process. So I have a couple more steps here. The next step, and we see them in this passage, renew your mind. Now we see that command twice in this passage. In verse 2, we're told to set your mind on the things above. And in verse 10, we're told to be renewed in our knowledge. This means you begin to think about your life and the way God thinks about your life. And where do you find how God thinks about your life? He's already told you how he thinks about your life in his word. If you want to have your incorrect beliefs corrected, your wrong thinking begin to shift over to right thinking, you must come to scripture to see what the right way of thinking is. It's not going to be enough for you to read your Bible in the morning and forget what you read on your way to work. It's not going to be enough because you're not going to have the rest of your day isn't going to be consumed with thinking the right way because you've forgotten what the right way is. It's going to take work. You've got to read this over and over. You've got to memorize it, meditate on it, in order for it to actually renew your mind. So that way, even if you don't have your Bible with you, when that wrong thought comes in, you now correct it with the right thought. And it's not just your mind, though. What else do we find? You must also have Christ rule your heart. What you desire in life, what you value in life, needs to become what is it that Christ desires? What is it that Christ values in life? Now, you might have an objection here. What control do I have over what I want? Do I control my own feelings, my own emotions? And I would argue that most of us do not have immediate control over our feelings, or emotions. Not immediate, but I would argue all of us can have eventual control over them. So in the moment when life presses in, you can't really at that moment say, okay, I want to change water to grape juice. You can't shift it like that. But over time, as Christ begins to rule in your heart, you then start to see what's already inside of you begin to now change 
and shift. You know, I used to care a lot about what other people thought about me. When I was in school, in high school and middle school, I was so overwhelmed by it at times. But the more I read Scripture, the more I read verses like Galatians 1.10 that says, if I, were still, uh, if I were still trying to please man, I would no longer be a servant of Christ. I can't try to please man and please God at the same time. So my heart's desire then, while meditating on that verse, began to change. Now there's times, all of us, right, at times still struggle with wanting other people to look at us and like us and think certain things about us. But the frequency with which I think about that and care about that and the intensity with which I care about that has lessened immensely over the years as I've meditated on that and had Christ's desires, the desire to please God, overwhelm and rule my heart. And we see that's Paul's point here in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. In the midst of the arguments that are going on in this church, he says, have the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. There's an expectation that they are going to have a desire for peace. And that should become a dominating desire because it's Christ's desire that they would have unity as a body together. And not just because it's Christ's desire, but because it's only in Christ that they're actually going to be able to accomplish that peace. And then also verse 16. The desires of your heart are going to be influenced by having God's word dwelling in you. Again, not just reading it, but actually continuing to preach it to yourself day by day. Continuing to submit yourself to it day by day. And as your mind and your heart are renewed and ruled by Christ, you then begin to see that your behaviors and your words follow. Your behaviors and your words follow what your mind and your heart is already headed towards. So we see these steps. Mourn your sin. Rely on God's grace. Have a renewed mind and a Christ-ruled heart. There's two final reminders I want to give about how we change and then we'll be done. First, change is a community project. If you think you can do this on your own, see your sinful behaviors, see your sinful thoughts, see your sinful desires, you're wrong. All of us have blind spots. All of us do. And we all need each other. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Some people will just stop there and say, okay, me and God, your word dwelling in me richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's a community project. We all need instruction. We need people in our lives who know Scripture better than we do to speak into our lives, to help us correct the desires and the thoughts that we're having. We need singing in our lives. 
don't know about you, but when we gather together and we sing out together, there's a confidence that comes when we're all standing here together saying, we all agree on this truth of who God is. And we all need accountability. We need other people in our lives that are going to come to you and say, hey, I know not only are you struggling with this behavior, but you shared with me what's going on in your mind and your heart when you do this behavior. How's that going? How can I pray for you? Maybe having verses to come with and say, this is what God's words, let me remind you that this is what God's word says about those thoughts and those desires. And also the other side of accountability, right? Hey, I know you said you've been struggling with this and I've been watching you and I've been talking to you and it really seems like you're really making a lot of progress. Praise God for that. Praise God for his grace working in you and doing that. And then the final reminder here, which really could be the overarching theme of everything we've talked about. The entire goal of change is the goal of honoring Christ. What takes your eyes off your earthly circumstances and brings them to focus in on a God-honoring response to those circumstances is a pursuit of wanting to see Christ get the glory. That you want to please God in all that you do in life. See it in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Every single thing you do, every single thing you speak, is to be done in the name of Jesus. The only way this happens is if you think Christ's glory is the most important thing in life. And if you desire His glory to be seen in every situation in life. You cannot think wrongly, desire sinfully, or behave immorally when you are first seeking to please God. So if you want to experience true change, to put off the old self and put on the new, make it your aim in life to honor Christ in everything. It is only in having that aim where you will find God's grace, his grace to have your mind renewed and your heart ruled by Christ. Let's pray together. Father, help us to be aware of the sin in our own lives. Not just our behaviors, but help us to dig deep into our minds and our hearts and realize, what am I, how am I thinking wrongly about this situation? What am I desiring here that isn't pleasing to you? May that stir us to have lives that are pleasing to you. May that stir us to change, Father. Help us to realize any effort we make for change is never enough without your grace. We can never do any of it on our own. 
only by your grace and your spirit working in us. But also help us to realize that you're not just going to randomly do it for no reason. That it's not just passive and laziness on our part. But help us to wake up every morning. Take captive our thoughts and desires and bring them into obedience and submission to you. May we think about the world and ourselves and you and our circumstances in the way that you think about them. And may we desire, value the things in life, the same things that Christ desires and values. May we understand that's how true change takes place. Help us to have our minds and our hearts renewed and ruled by Jesus. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. We're going to close our time together as they come up to, uh, we're going to, well, we're going to close this portion. It is Communion Sunday, but we're going to.